All right, you guys, um, if you have a Bible with you, please open it up to Matthew chapter 12, and, uh, and we will stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> I'm going to read today verses 15 through 21 again, just like last week. We began this section and we'll finish it today. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed Him, and He healed them all, and ordered them not to make Him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is God's Word. You guys can have a seat. In the book of the Revelation, the last book of our Bibles, the Apostle John records these words. In Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Last week I alluded to the sermon of Jonathan Edwards. I want to read a quote from that sermon in reference to these words. He says, quote, There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. The lion and the lamb, the very diverse kinds of creatures, yet have each their peculiar excellencies. The lion excels in strength and in majesty, and appearance, and voice. The Lamb excels in meekness and patience. Besides, the excellent nature of the creature is good for food, and yielding that which is fit for clothing, and being suitable to be offered in sacrifice to God. But we see that Christ is in the text compared to both. Because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in Him. End quote. That's what we're talking about as we look at this Old Testament prophecy that Matthew has reached back and pulled into New Testament times after the life of Christ to support His claims that Jesus is the Messiah. He's referring to these diverse excellencies and that's what we're studying and last week we began looking at this prophecy and just by way of, of recapping and reminder, I want to walk back through verses 18, 19 and the beginning of verse 20. 
We saw in verse 18, we looked at the identity of the Christ. And we answered the question, who is this Messiah based on this prophecy? And so we saw, verse 18, behold my servant. So he's God's, God is speaking through Isaiah, so he's God's servant. But then we saw my servant whom I have chosen. So he's not just any servant, he's not just a slave, he's God's perfectly suited, specially selected servant. Out of all of creation, God chose this Messiah, this one, to be His servant. We continue reading, My beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So we see that not only is He the servant of God, not only is He the specially selected servant of God, but that God the Father actually has an eternal Supreme delight for this servant, this coming Messiah. He is well pleased with Him. He is the beloved of the Father. So He's not just any servant. And we kept reading, I will put My Spirit upon Him and He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So again, He's not just a servant. He's not just a slave. And He's not just a perfectly suited, perfectly selected servant of God. He's not just the eternally supreme delight and beloved of God the Father, but He is also the Spirit-filled and wholly and completely yielded messenger of God the Father. He is the ambassador of God the Father, sent on a mission to proclaim God's justice. He is the one God has chosen to go forth and proclaim justice. That was his identity. Now, when we read these things, we, we've built up quite a portfolio of credentials. I mean, this is, this is quite the, the Messiah that's going to come. And so, we might expect this servant to come with a motorcade of chariots just preparing the way for him and, and knocking people out of the way and clearing trees and clearing the path. We might expect him to come and command respect and honor with his chest stuck out. The type of man that walks into the room and all the other men line up to ask what they can do for him. That type of man. We, we might expect him to come and demand an audience. Demand a hearing. Demand everybody to be silent and listen to what he has to say. And if we're honest, as we're looking back, now if we're honest, we know this Messiah deserves every one of these things. He deserves it. Holy and completely. He's the only one that deserves it. But then we moved into verse 19 and we began to look at his character. We asked the question, based on this prophecy, what type of character traits, what kind of attributes will this Messiah have? The first one we saw, he will not quarrel. So he's, he's not, he won't be quarrelsome. Now, again, we, we would imagine that a messenger of this status, an ambassador of God the Father, might come and, and just dare anyone to oppose Him. Just, just looking for a theological debate. He's always right. He is truth. The full manifestation of truth in a human being. So we would think maybe He, he would just come and say, I dare you to challenge me. I dare you to debate me. Or we might imagine that He would come with, with brute force and just wipe away anybody who would challenge anything He says. But He didn't. He did not come that way. He's, he's not quarrelsome. 
And we kept reading. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. So he's, he won't be loud and boisterous. Now again, we would imagine when we read his identity, we might imagine trumpets going off in the streets, declaring that he's coming, that the Messiah is here. Or we would imagine soldiers coming and preparing a way for him to, to enter into the city so that he could present himself. We might imagine that news of his majesty and his, his glory and his regality and his, his supremacy would Proceed everywhere he goes to where when he shows up, everybody's already ready, they're already bowed, their lips are shut, they're ready to listen. But it wasn't that way. That's not how he came. He will not be loud. He, you will not hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to be loud and boisterous. And then in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. That, that is, he will be gentle and compassionate. Now again, we would imagine when we read of his identity, we imagine this to be a man, a servant, an ambassador of God the Almighty who would come and probably have no time for the little people. We would imagine that he would be the type of man that details just slow him down. He's got no time to meddle in the minutia of individual people's lives. He's on a mission. He's got bigger fish to fry. We would imagine that the weak and the poor and the lowly and those who require much patience and much care and much attention would just hold up the Master's work. Because He's on a mission. He's, he's got a duty to proclaim. that those, those people would just be disregarded as a waste of the Master's time. But He was not that way. He was gentle and compassionate. Now think about that contrast. When we look at His identity, and then we look at His character, think about the contrast. The lion and the lamb. He, he has this majestic identity, but then His character, He's, he's like a lamb, tender and, and gentle. He's the servant, chosen servant of God the Almighty, and yet He humbles Himself to be a servant, not only a servant of God the Father, but a servant of men. And not only men, not, not, not great men, not high men, not lofty men, specifically those who are lowly, the meek, the, 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 the little ones. When he was born, the angels did not go into the courts of the, the throne, the courts of the kingdom where the king was, they didn't go into the town square or to the gates of the city where the elders would meet and, and discuss important matters and say, just so you guys know, the king is born. No, they went to shepherds. In this time period, shepherds were, were looked down upon, despised, dirty, smelled like stinking sheep, spent most of their time outside, and the angels went to those men. Diverse excellencies. But... And this is big. This is the idea that we're going to talk about today. The main idea is that He will not always be the suffering servant. And so, the first point last week was His identity. The second point we looked at was the character of the Messiah. Today we're going to pick up, and I'm just going to continue on number three, the mission of the Christ. 
And we're going to answer the question, what specific assignment has Jesus been given according to this prophecy? What is his job? What do we, what, when we read this, what does it say that he's going to do? In verse 20, the end of verse 20, this last line is what we're going to focus on now. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. Until he brings justice to victory. Now I want to look at this word, until. Most of us, if not all of this, probably use this word every single day. If we don't say until, we probably use the shortened version, till. But I wonder how often we think about what it means and all that it implies. The word until means up to a point or a place. As far as a point and then no further. It implies a change or a shift in goal. See, when you use the word until, you're actually implying three different points. A beginning point and then a stopping point. And that stopping point is also a starting point of something else. There's a, there's a change. It sets forth the ceasing of the current form and the beginning of a new form. So we're saying, when we use the word until, we're saying it will be a certain way to a point, and then it will stop being that way, and it will be a different way. For example, I had to work until 5. That means I was working... At 5 o'clock, I began not working. I stopped working and began to be not working. Or, how are you feeling today? Well, I was sick until the medicine kicked in. And at that point, I began to be not so sick. It, it changed. What do you think about that guy? Well, we were great friends until I found out a little bit about his secret life. So we were friends. And a point came, and I found out, and then from that point, we were not so great of friends. How do you feel about that song? Well, I, I was really loving that song until the chorus, and then I wasn't really into it anymore. I was loving it, and then a point came, and it changed. You, you get the idea. When you, when you use the word until, there's a point of change. Now, we just read from verse 18 through most of verse 20, we were talking about his identity, we read of his character, and remember, this is from Isaiah, one of what we call Isaiah's servant songs. So the focus of the character traits here is that of a servant. Now Isaiah 53, he's the suffering servant. Now without that image, that servant image of Christ, we have no Christ. If you do not grasp him as the servant, the suffering servant, you don't have the biblical Jesus. If he's just a pacifist, just a loving guy, just a prophet, just a, a, a hippie, you don't have the real Jesus. He, he must be the suffering servant, but that's not the only image that he has. That's not the only role that he plays in the pages of Scripture. And that's the problem with crucifixes. Jesus is not on a cross right now. That's a problem because he doesn't have a crown of thorns on his head right now. When we think of pictures, we think of um, Jesus is not sitting on a rock talking to children right now. He's not looking up in a tree talking to Zacchaeus right now. Any image that we would formulate on this planet will fall short of his 
truest, and greatest glory because He's not always one picture. We can't sum all of His traits up in one picture. And here we're seeing that played out. He does not remain the suffering servant forever. And the idea here is that He's serving one mission with with a certain goal, assuming certain character traits that will culminate and be completed and it will stop and then, and I'm not being heretical here, I've even got it in quotes on my notes here, he will assume another quote identity. He doesn't become anybody different, but he takes on different character traits. He begins a new mission. So when we think about Jesus this way, he's not always in our minds gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Now some seem to imagine him as such. Oh Jesus, he would... He would never hurt a fly. Jesus would, he would never say a cross word to anybody. That's just, you're not being Christ-like. He would never disagree with anybody. He would never challenge anyone. Oh, Jesus, He basically just lived like a doormat to be walked on, and, and that's how He is. But Jesus, you know Him, He's just standing outside the door of your heart knocking, just hoping somebody will let Him in. He's cold, He's hungry. He just needs somebody to hang out with. That's the way we think of Jesus, and the problem is He did play the role of suffering servant, until He brings justice to victory. That's the end point of His mission. He will bring justice to victory and then a change takes place. Until He brings justice to victory. Bringing justice to victory will signify the point toward which He was working and the beginning of something else. Now that sounds a little confusing, bring justice to victory. That that might sound weird, and so I want to answer the question. What does it mean, or, or how is it that the Messiah, this promised one, will bring justice to victory? We know this is Jesus. We can look back and we know for certain this is speaking of Jesus. So how is it that Jesus can bring justice to victory? What does that look like? Well, I just want to break these terms down. <clears throat> justice is going to be the more difficult one. Victory is going to be simple. The same word for justice was used back up in verse 18. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Here, he will bring justice to victory. And I said last week that this word justice could also be judgments. It could also be the law of God, the revelation of God, the ways of God. When you read Psalm 119, the whole chapter is about Scripture but it uses words like law, instruction, statutes, judgments, rules, commands. Those all mean the special revelation of God. Here it's the same idea. And I said last week that that's all summed up in what we could say is the gospel. There's a short gospel. They're not, they're not different. What Paul would say, that Christ lived and died according to the Scriptures, was buried and was raised again according to the Scriptures. That's short. That's the short good news. The fullest revelation of the good news is Genesis to Revelation. All that God has done in time and space and outside of time and space to redeem His people. So we talk about justice here. We're talking about all that God has done and is doing through His redemptive decrees. That's biblical justice. Now, in our terms, justice is just that which is morally right, morally proper, morally fair. 
morally right treatment. That's justice. So let's put these two ideas together. If we insert that worldly definition into the revelation of God through His redemptive degrees, all that He's doing, here's what we get. Now we know this to be true. All of that sounds confusing, but when I say this, you'll say, oh yeah, that's it. We know that ultimately, when all is said and done, and it's over, it's the end of time, we are in the final state, we are on the new earth with Jesus, when all is said and done, all that God is to us, and all that God has done for us in Christ, will bring to light and manifest the truest sense of right, of moral justice. Or we might say, He works all things for good for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. In the end, when all things have happened, we will look back and say, that's good. It's, he's just. It's clear. When He is finished, everything that He started, that is biblical justice. That's what it means. He's right. He's good in the end. Now, how does this play out in a redemptive historical context? In other words, from Genesis to Revelation, what does this look like? I want to I do that for you. You go back to the beginning, we have creation. And then we have the fall of man. God makes a covenant with Adam. We call it the covenant of works. Hey Adam, there's that tree. Eat everything else, just don't eat that tree. And there were promises based on this covenant. If you eat that tree, you'll die. So it's implied, if you don't eat that tree, you'll live. So there are promises and curses, or, or curses and blessings promised based on this covenant. What does Adam do? He breaks the covenant. He eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now Adam breaks the covenant, and Adam was our representative. He was our, what we call, federal head. He represented all of those in his race. So when he fell into sin... He plunged all of us into sin. We fell with Him. And so now, all human beings are born in trespasses and sins. Born dead in sin. We are by nature children of wrath. David would even say, I was conceived in iniquity. Just because I was conceived in the womb of a woman, I am by nature sinful. Now here's justice. We've all sinned. We have to be punished. That's justice. That's as simple as it can get. That would be justice. And the promise of the curse was death. That is, spiritual death and physical death for all people. We say group number one, all people who have sinned. We deserve spiritual death and physical death. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve eternal punishment for sinning against an infinitely holy and righteous God. That's what we deserve. Justice means we get that. But, God allows human history to continue. People keep living. People keep procreating. Families flourish. Common grace abounds. Jesus would say, God lets his, makes His reign and His fall on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. All people receive these graces from God that we don't deserve. So He keeps on going and that's not justice. That's injustice. That is the problem of the rest of Scripture. The rest of Scripture is the, the fixing of that injustice. 
is God appears to be unrighteous and unjust because He is allowing human beings who have all rebelled against His law, we've all broken His commandments, He allows us to continue to live, continue to flourish, continue to experience His grace, and more than that, we've got a second group of people. Not only do they get to keep living, but they actually have a special relationship with God, a special union with Him. And God just lets this go. There's so much sin, He just lets this go. Paul would call this in Romans 3.25, divine forbearance. In His divine forbearance, He has passed over former sins. He just kind of, it was as if God was saying, sin doesn't matter, just keep doing what you're doing. So we have group number one, all people who should be punished. Group number two, these people who have a special union, union with God. Romans 8, Ephesians 1, Revelation 13, 8, 17, 8, they all tell us that before the foundation of the world, God had a people that He had selected out of the human race, that He had elected unto salvation. Even though they were just as guilty as every other person, He said they're going to have a special relationship with Me. That's the second group. So now, what does justice look like? If, if there's going to be a certain people that God's going to redeem, then justice, that is all balances settled, looks like this. All of Adam's race who have remained sinful, held on to their sin, rejected Christ, remain in Adam, as the Bible would say, must be punished eternally for their sin. And all of those whom God has redeemed their sin also has to be punished, but in such a way that they themselves forego the punishment. They just do an end run around it and they're fine. That there's no punishment for those people. That would be justice. So then we ask, what would it take to serve this justice? What's it going to take to fulfill all of this? Eternal punishment must be served for all those in Adam's race. Then what we need is a new representative to stand in the place of a new race, God's chosen people, and suffer the punishment that they deserve. And that, that would be a way that justice would be served. That's justice. That's biblical justice. Sin is punished. God's people are redeemed. What's victory? This is a lot more simple. Victory, someone wins. A winner of a contest uh, or a battle. The act of defeating an enemy or opponent is the de definition. So when we talk about a victory, what's automatically implied is a battle or a struggle or a contest of some sort. And a victory implies that an enemy has been defeated. An opponent has lost a contest. We get all that from the word victory. So what would it look like for justice, like I just explained, to obtain a victory. Well, we know that the opponent of justice would be injustice. If justice wins, injustice loses. So again, the apparent injustice on a grand scheme is people created in God's image for His glory to worship Him and Him alone have chosen instead to reject His rule, rebel against His commands, and worship everything else under the sun. And he lets it go. That's the apparent injustice. And even though all of those people deserve immediate punishment, just like that, we deserve hell, eternal hell, just like that, 
God, in his wisdom, has decided to save some, has chosen to use this fallen race to display his power. He's he's used fallen human beings to actually bring into the world the Messiah that he would use to settle all accounts. And all this time, while this is taking place, sinners are allowed to live, to rebel, to use the lips that He gave us to curse His name, to use the feet that He gave us to be swift to shed blood, to use the minds that He gave us to conjure up new ways of of sin and wickedness, the hands that He gave us to, to hurt and destroy and to tear down. It just keeps on going. Generation after generation after generation, we all deserve to die, but we haven't. That's the apparent Injustice on a large scale. If we, if we funnel this down to a smaller scale, people created in God's image are hateful and mean to one another. We kill one another. We take the lives of those who don't even have a voice of their own through abortion, euthanasia, these things. We just destroy life. Those who are the meek and the lowly are treated with contempt. Those who would seek to proclaim the gospel are looked at as as hateful, are condemned by society. Christians around the world are persecuted and killed daily. The world scoffs at our faith, scoffs at our Savior, makes a mockery of everything that we believe. These are all injustices on a smaller scale. These injustices flow from the greater injustice. Sin has entered the world and God has just let it go. One of the the biggest arguments, one of the hardest things to understand for the atheist is if there is a God, how is there still evil? How is there still sin? And when we hear and see and experience these apparent injustices and things being left unaddressed, we say with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? How long is it going to be? We've been waiting and waiting. Our brothers and sisters around the world are being died. They're being killed Slaughtered daily. How long will you let it keep going? It just looks like there's injustice on behalf of God. So then the next question arises, what event or what series of events will it take for justice to beat injustice? And I believe that the victory takes place over time through a series of events. And that began when Jesus was incarnate as a human being, born of a woman, born under the law. He comes like a root out of dry ground. He he lives a life of suffering. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He is crucified by the government as a criminal, suffering on that cross, not only that pain, but under the wrath of God for God's people. He conquers death and Satan by raising from the dead three days later for our justification. Now in all of that, our debt is settled. If you are a Christian, justice is served. The balance is settled. And then he ascends as the king. He now rules and reigns over all the universe, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us on our behalf. And he must come again to complete this work. This is the gospel story focused specifically on the work of Christ. He has to come again. 
But all of that other stuff was 2,000 years ago. So the question again is, how long? Oh Lord, when's He going to finish the work? We're waiting and waiting and waiting. How long is it going to take? When will justice finally and completely win out over the apparent injustice? And I continue to use the word apparent because it looks to us like injustice. How long is it going to be? To answer that, I want you guys to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. It'll be on the screen, but I also want you to be able to, to see it with your eyes and, and highlight it, mark it in your Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first 13 verses of this chapter. It's the majority of this chapter, but I think <clears throat> this is good because what's happening in this chapter is Peter is addressing the question that I just asked. How long, O oh Lord? It's been 2,000 years. What's, what's the deal with the injustice? Except he's answering it in response to the unbeliever who is challenging the Christians. This is what Peter says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And here's the problem. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's a false statement. And so he addresses it. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So what he's saying is it hasn't been just carrying on the way it was. It used to be one way and God destroyed it. It hasn't just been the same. And then he goes on, he says, but by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So in other words, God has already brought justice one time and He will bring it again. It hasn't just been carrying on the way it has always been. You've just, you just have neglected to remember this tiny little detail about the flood. Second argument, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here's second argument. You're saying, where are the promises? Where's He at? We've been waiting all this time. He hasn't coming back yet. He's not coming back. Everything's just carried on the way it always has. He says, no, first of all, you're forgetting the flood. He's already brought judgment one time. He's going to bring it again. Second problem is you think God operates on your timeline. And the, th and the truth of the, rea or the reality is, for Him, a thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. He doesn't operate in our time. He's actually just being patient toward you so that He can gather all His people in. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, we can look at the injustices and we think, what's taking so long? How long, O oh Lord? And Peter says, hey, God's not on our time frame. The day of the Lord will come. The earth that we're on now is just stored up for fire. It's just waiting to be destroyed. Judgment will come. And then we answer, or we ask this question. Well, who's going to bring this day of judgment? How's it going to get here? Who's going to bring justice to victory, in other words? And I read this passage, another popular passage. We we love this. One of my favorite passages in Scripture. I always tell people when when they have a false view of Jesus, they just see gentle Jesus, meek and mild. They just see the suffering servant. I say, keep reading. It's in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, it says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one setting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, and He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who will bring justice to victory? Jesus Christ, our mighty King, will usher in justice and He will bring justice to victory. That is the mission of the servant of God. He does not always suffer. He has began a process that He will culminate and He will consummate. He will complete it. He will bring Justice to victory. He will come again, not as a servant, but as the sovereign king. When he returns, he will not be a lackey. He will be Lord of lords. Jesus will bring justice to victory. So then, point number four, the conclusion concerning the Christ based on this prophecy. At what judgment should we arrive? How should we conclude based on this? How do we act? Now that we know His identity, now that we know His character, and now that we see what His mission is, how do we respond? Verse 21, And in His name, the Gentiles will hope. That's the answer. Hope in His name. When we read the word name, of course we know that that means His reputation, His fame, all that He is and will do sums up 
in His name. He has made a name for Himself. And the Gentiles, that's us. So what do we do? We hope in His name. All the nations will hope in His name. In the name of Jesus. Now, how do we do that? What does it look like for us to hope in His name? Well, first, we trust in His work, His life, His death, His resurrection on our behalf for our salvation. He has satisfied the justice of God on our behalf. Did we receive justice? No. We received mercy. We don't want justice. We don't want morally right and fair because that means we get punished. We didn't get justice. We got mercy. And so we trust in this mercy for our salvation. And then from that point, we rely on the Holy Spirit of Jesus to sanctify us, to get us ready for His coming. He does this by guiding us to the Word, Scripture. He does this by illuminating the Scripture so that we can understand it. He does this by applying the Scripture to our hearts so that we can then make use of it. He he works in us both to will and to work for the, the good pleasure of God. He convicts us of sin and righteousness Most importantly, this is what the Holy Spirit does. When we rely on Him, is He picks our chin up and He focuses our gaze on Jesus, on the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we continue to hope in His name. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to Himself. He always points our gaze to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, to hope in His name is simply to long for His return. Paul says, who hopes in what he sees. We don't hope in what we see, we hope in what we can't see. We can't see Jesus, but we long for His return. So we pray for His return. Lord, come quickly. We aspire to live lives that are holy until His return. We set our hopes on the next life. We lay aside worldly pleasures and we long for the world that is to come. We we do not store up Treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. We lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven in the next life where moths and rust cannot corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal. They will be stored forever. We we lay up treasures not of wood and hay and stubble, but of, of gold and metal and precious stones, things that will make it through God's judgment. We lay aside worldly pleasures We hunger and we thirst for righteousness in the here and now as a way to participate in God's redemptive plan. So we look for areas where we can be evangelists, where we can be missionaries, where we can spread the gospel around the globe. We we practice these things because we're displaying, we are showing, my hope's in Jesus. He's my all in all. I don't put any hope in anything here. I have nothing here. Everything on this earth, besides what we've done for the kingdom of God, will be burned up. So I I live and act in such a way, even though I can't see Him, I act like He's right here with me. In everything I do. So Matthew helps us here. He he points to this prophecy and he helps us see that that the earthly ministry of Jesus was, was to perform this mission and to fulfill these prophecies until the time comes for him to embark on the next part of the mission. He had to come this way first. He had to come as the the humble servant, the suffering servant, 
first. Because as Peter put it, in his patience, God the Father was allowing time for all of His people to repent. He's not willing that any of His should, should perish, but that all of His should come to repentance. See, we weren't ready. If Jesus would have just came the first time, we wouldn't be here. We would never have experienced salvation and the grace of God. So He's been patient. John Calvin says, were Christ to appear in His glory, what else could be expected but that it would altogether swallow us up? We're not ready for Him to come back like that yet. So we see Jesus withdraw. We see Him sneak away. We see Him commanding people, you know, don't, don't tell who I am. Conceal my identity. And this was not because He was afraid. It was not because He was, had a lack of faith. It's not a proof that, well, see, He was just a man. He was fulfilling prophecy. He was submitting to the Scriptures. He was submitting to the plan of God, not our plan, not the way we would have done it. And He did this for His people. And just like last week, if you do not know Him, you can know Him today. And I've already explained, He's, he's lived in our place, He's died in our place, He's rose again for our justification. We trust. We respond with repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. I open with Edwards and I'll close with Edwards from that same sermon. He says, If Christ accepts of you, you need not fear but that you will be safe for He is, a strong, is strong as a lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear but that you shall be accepted for He is like a lamb to all that come to Him and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. It is true. He is, or He has awful majesty. He is the great God. He is infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner that Christ is man as well as God. He is creature as well as creator. He is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. This may well make the poor, unworthy creature be bold in coming to Him. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to Him and cast yourself upon Him. The Lion and the Lamb. Let's pray.